Welcome to the Thinnest Veil Podcast, a place where we talk about spirituality, ceremony, religion, and connection. This is a podcast where we explore storytelling, the big mother's Mary and Mother Earth, social justice Jesus, magic, sermonizing, intuition, and so much more. I am your host, Dr. Melissa Bird, a clairvoyant lay preaching Christian witch with a penchant for fast cars and living in infinite potential. I'm so glad you're here. Let's get started. All right. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to the Thinnest Veil podcast. My name is Dr. Melissa Bird, and I am really excited today um, to talk to you about this really incredible book called Rewriting Eve, Rescuing Women's Stories from the Bible and Reclaiming Them as Our Own. I'm so thrilled to have my guest, Rana Diedrich, here with me. And would you just introduce yourself and tell my audience a little bit about who you are? Sure. I never quite know how to answer this question. Of course, it feels like it changes from day to day, but um, at a professional level, I am a coach and a spiritual director, a writer, and a speaker. Uh, On a personal level, I am in Hampstead, North Carolina, and um, I'm the mom of two daughters, one of whom just got married. And, uh, but neither of whom live near me. So I miss them immensely. Uh, and I am, um, I I love stories. I love old stories. I love paying attention to the stories that are kind of between the lines in my own life, as well as in those of my clients. And, you know, really any of my friends would say, I'm constantly just listening for the theme of the story that I think is in there. Uh, and, uh, that has taken me lots of really interesting places over the years. And, um, the book would be a rec, um, an example of that for sure. I really love that. I, I feel like storytelling is such an important part of life and it's something that I think subconsciously, we don't even realize we're doing it when we start telling stories, but it's such a critical Mm -hmm. piece of who we are and our story changes. And I think that's, what's, um, really beautiful about this book is that while Mm -hmm. the stories have remained in the in the bible for a really long time um that the stories can change and evolve over time too which is what i love about the bible actually is its adaptability Mm. to change Mm. um and i'm curious i'm curious well i have many questions but why did you write this book Well, in many ways, I think the answer is that I I don't I don't know how I couldn't not have that's super bad grammar, but um, <laughs> uh, in one way, shape, or form, I've been working with. I mean, I've known these stories my whole life. Like I grew up in the church, you know, I've been gone from it now for 20 years, I suppose. Um, but they're in my DNA, right? Like I went to Sunday school, I went to vacation Bible school. Like I've known these stories for forever. Um, and you know, through a long process of learning and being in seminary and deconstruction and, divorce and life and all kinds of things. Um, the stories have stayed with me in increasingly different ways, uh, where they once were doctrinal required, 
um, hugely significant in terms of understanding the heritage of my faith, so to speak. Over the years, what they have become, the women, the stories of the women, they've become companions to me. They have shaped and changed who I've become as a woman. And so because of that evolution and because I'm constantly writing, it has always felt really important for me to be able to somehow offer them voice. Mm-hmm. Um I feel like they've spoken to me like that, like it just has been very intimate and very personal. And I have felt all along someone needs to honor them. Like they deserve to be known and heard and seen in new and redemptive and empowering ways. And so that feels like that's mine to do. Uh, Not that others haven't and won't, um, but it just has always stuck with me very closely that I can't not do it. Like I need to be able to bring these stories um, forward in ways that invite our love for them in the way that I think they've loved us all along. Mm-hmm. I love that so much. One of the things that I really um, enjoy so much about this book. So as many of my listeners know, um, I, I, I am an Episcopal. I am Christian. And, um, and I am also, uh, came to my faith kicking and screaming and, um, very, most of us leave it that way. So that's awesome. Most people leave it that way. I came in going, Oh, hell no. What am I doing here? And one of the things that I love so much about this book, as I have been reading it is, um, you talk about how you even do it right in the very beginning of the book. Like you talk about how tensions abound. And one of the things that I find so fascinating about the Bible as a, as a story is that how tense it is like, and, and it makes me wonder if that's why people have tried to wrangle it and control the stories of the Bible Um, Mm. because of that tension. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about, about as you explored these stories, because one of the things you did, you chose 10 stories and they're not all the stories we hear all the time. Um, And I'm going to dig into that in just a little bit with some of my questions about some of the women that you chose, but can you talk to me a little bit about the tensions that abound for you and what you realized about those tensions in the process of going through the action of writing and publishing this book? Mm. Hmm. That's a great question. I think in my own experience, as well as in my conversations with other women in particular, that's who my, my client group tends to be. And, um, you know, as we, 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 as we, mature, as we walk through our own lives, as we begin to make our own decisions and form our own system of beliefs beyond the ones we were handed when we were young, um, especially if we've grown up in a, in a Christian context, you're the exception here in terms of choosing it later. But if we've grown up in that environment, um, we are taught to push the tension to the side. 
if when we're young and we ask questions about the text or we ask questions about God or we ask, you know, any any of the questions that just naturally show up for us because of the text itself, I think in many ways, there's always an answer. There's always a, um, a, some kind of clarification or um, delineation that tells us how we can think about this and how we should not think about this. And often, at least in my experience, like I just accepted that for probably the first 40 to, wow, like 40 years of my life. Like I didn't actually question it, even though I could see the tension in the text and I could feel it. It wasn't, I knew better. Like it was almost as though it was sinful or wrong or bad for me to question or wrestle with any of it. So I think one of the things that the text invites if we have the if we have the eyes and heart to see it that way is a recognition that it is no different than our own lives it's messy and it's tangled and it is not linear and things do not make sense in that text and there's harm and there's violence and there's celebration and there's love there's everything all wrapped up in single stories, not to mention the larger narrative of the text, which actually comforts me <laughs> because I think, hey, that's what my life feels like. My life is full of tension. My life is full of paradox and confusion and harm and violence and joy and celebration. So what if I could look at this text and allow for the tension instead of trying to dispel it instead of trying to make sense of everything and find categories to explain away the things we let we don't like about the text what if we just sit with it and say well thank god because that's the same as me you know the example i think of oftentimes you know the story of eve of course i work with a lot i mean in the book but i've worked with her for a long time and people have often said to me, like, don't you think that it's true that because they were cast out of the garden, that that infers that Eve's choice was wrong? And of course, I completely disagree, and I won't get into that in this moment. But but what I love about her story is that in making the choice that she does, they are cast into a brand new world that is full of tension and full of struggle and also full of far more intimacy with the divine than they ever had before in the garden. And I think, well, that's a story I can relate to. That's a story that makes sense to me. A story that's set in paradise for forever and ever, amen. I, I, that doesn't, I don't know what to do with that, but it's gritty. Like I do know what to do with the difficulty of making a choice where I trust my own intuition, all the ramifications and risks that are going to go along with that. Like I get that. Mm -hmm. So that's the story that I want. I want the story of Eve where she's right in the throes of figuring mm -hmm. out, can I actually trust my own wisdom? Am I willing to mm -hmm. bear the risks and costs and consequences of that? Will there be a story after I do well, pretty much the whole text flows from that one story. Like we have a yeah. whole Bible that continued even after Eve's amazing decision. Um, so I don't know I if wait. I'm answering the question. I you just did. feel like the tensions are the beauty. 
Yeah, I I um I wish the audience could see me emphatically nodding my head yes and no. Right? <laughs> like like no, that's not like for me the story of Eve is is that she listened to her intuition. She listened to mm. which is the choice that it's the free will that that people talk about all the time. Like exactly. She, you went all the way in, right? Exactly. And, 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 and then of course, as you're talking, I'm emphatically nodding my head. Yes. Like, like as much as I think sometimes it would be really lovely to be in paradise, um, this process of humaning is so fascinating to me. I just, I, I just was cleaning out bin after bin of old things that I've held on to. I'm, I'm releasing old thoughts and old stuff that mm. doesn't serve me anymore and and I've spent the last 24 hours just grieving just sobbing mm. and crying and wailing and 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 just tenderly weeping throughout the day because I found letters that I haven't seen in in decades and some that I've never seen at all that uh, my my father died when I was six. He committed suicide. And so mm. I found all these letters he had written to my grandmother, to his mother, about mm. when his first job, where he and my mom, when they were first married, lived at the Cliff Lodge in Snowbird. And I'm I'm reading these letters and and crying. Like they had a whole life before me, right? But we never talked mm -hmm. about that life because of his death. His death was so tra tragic and horrible for my mom that, that we never mm -hmm. talked about him. And so I'm getting to know him through these letters. And, and this goes back to what we were talking about earlier about how storytelling is just so, it's critical to our humanity and this yeah. messy humanness. And, and I think that I think that when we pull the Bible out of white supremacist male hands and we put it into the hands of women, and I've seen mm -hmm. this a bazillion times when we put it in the hands of queer people, people of color and women, the mm -hmm. stories totally change. Mm -hmm. And I want to talk for a minute about um, the Canaanite woman because um, one of the things well, first of all, I I really love this story of um, this desperate woman who is trying to save her daughter from a demon, right? And and just please help my daughter. And you do such a beautiful job of of holding that tension that I think so many people, whether they have had their own children or not, think about our daughters, right? Could we please just just help our daughters of of mm. all backgrounds wherever they come from and one of the things that i really love about about this chapter in particular is that you point out that she did not stay hidden or silent as was customary preferred or nearly demanded and i'm i do not say silent about much of this <laughs> I'm certainly not hidden. And also I have wrestled with that so much throughout my life. Um, you know, being too much, too loud. I take up yeah. too much space. I'm too big. <clears throat> and I think that resonates. One of the things I just love about this book, whether you're Christian or not, the these stories 
are woven into the fabric of our culture, right? Mm-hmm. Of our, of, because of the nature of just the United States of America. And I, I am wondering if you would be willing to just dig into this idea of places where the story has helped you or given you insight, particularly about our very mere presence is completely unacceptable. And hmm. just what you learn from the Canaanite woman, I mean, you talk about it a bit, but I'd wondered if you would just get into that a little bit about the insights of the Canaanite women um, and what you really gleaned from that. Cause it's one of my favorite parts of the book. Mm, thank you. You know what I'm really struck by with what you just said, Melissa, is this idea of uh, being too much. You know, I think that's so many of us as women struggle with that. Um, and I think, again, I, I, well, I'm not going to apologize. I go right back to Eve because I think that story sort of set the tone for a woman who was too much. I don't believe she was, but the way that we've interpreted and extrapolated this over time is see what happens when you get your own ideas, see what happens when you make your own decisions, see what happens when, you know, all that. And so when I look at this story of the Canaanite woman who is getting evidence and data and feedback all the way through the story that she's too much, but she refuses that characterization. She refuses to be silenced. She refuses to be shamed or shut down or pushed away. She demands on behalf of her daughter um, and she's not even demanding on her own behalf. She she sacrifices self really on behalf of someone else. What I often think about is what, my, let me just use myself. If I had heard that story told the way I wish it were, the way I'm hoping that I'm telling it, you know, a, an example of a woman who says to Jesus, uh, yeah, not acceptable to me. You need to listen to what it is that I'm saying. I'm not taking this from you. Here's what I want. I know you have the power to give it to me. Come on. And even with the derogatory statements, the pejorative things that he says in response to her, which again, this is a great example of tension in the text where we've done all this interpretive work over the years to try to make sense of why Jesus is rude to her, why he says the things that he says. I read commentary after commentary after commentary that explained why he's speaking to her the way that he is. And after every one of them, I'm like, bullshit. Like none of that (laughs) works for me. Like even if it is a rhetorical device, even if it was a Middle Eastern teaching methodology, forget it. Like it's rude. It's not, it's, and it's still in the text. I mean, that's the thing that I keep going back to is over all the centuries that we've we've worked with this document, you know, oral tradition, then written scrolls, scribes, all that, we let this story stand as is, where Jesus is rude to a woman who says, no, not acceptable. You need to listen and give me what it is that I want. Okay. Had we interpreted that story that way, had we allowed the tension, had we if I, as a little girl, had heard a story about a woman who argues with the divine on behalf of what she wants and ultimately gets it, changes Jesus' mind, 
impacts him so significantly that he changes his tune and heals her daughter, who would I have been as a teenager as opposed to the young woman that I was? What choices would I have made differently in my 20s, my 30s, my 40s, when I found myself in places of feeling like I couldn't ask for what I wanted? Like it was too much for me to demand. People would say rude things to me and I wouldn't speak back. I'd go, oh, well, it must be me, not you. Like, you know, whatever. All of the compliance that we do, all the compromise. I have to believe that this story alone, had we been told it in a way that honored her, we as a species, but women in particular, would be radically different today, culturally. But this is an example of where the tension has been so high. I mean, it's a great example. The tension is so high. This is a woman who argues with the divine. Oh, no, no, no. We can't tell it that way mm-hmm. because that would give women. Well, that creates a whole, lot, a whole lot of uppity women. Exactly. I mean- <laughs> it's sort of like the story of Vashti, right? Like yes. Queen Vashti, where they, all of them get together and go, well, we can't have the other women in the kingdom, knowing that the queen said no to the king, we better do something about it. So we have these threads all the way through these stories that show us what happens when women step up, when women do not stay silent, when women do exert their power and their wisdom and their desires one thing that happens is they get shut down. But another thing that happens is that the stories somehow survive. Yeah. And I think that gives us carte blanche permission to repeat the process. Yeah. Uh, feeling and, free to do so instead of shamed. Yeah. And don't you also think, I mean, one of the things I love about what you're saying and, and, and you, you do remind us throughout the book of the time when it was written. Uh-huh. And, and I, I also think there's so much in reading, in reading this book, one of the things that, that was so freeing to me was this idea that, yes, this was written in a time, right? Yet so much has not really changed. And I think part of the reason it has not really changed is because the Bible was taken from the hands of people of color and you know the i've i've often heard you know people say that the bible was written by brown people for brown people by slaves for slaves like when we look mm. at the context in which the text was written and the place it was written and the mm. time it was written that is such it, it's so important because of what you were just talking about about what could have happened if you had heard the story of a woman influencing the divine and arguing with the divine differently, who would you have been? And I think that's so important to where we're at as a nation today, you know, with the rise of Christian nationalism and all of the tensions mm. that are happening. You know, if someone hears this audio in a hundred years, I just want you to know it's like Tuesday, September 26, 2023. <laughs> like, like, <laughs> 2023 year it all started going mad again you know like I just think I love what you talk about about um looking at when it was written but also remembering that not much has changed and I wonder if it's because 
of the men who grabbed hold King James in the, you know, as an example, the men who grabbed hold of the Bible and said, this is how we'll use it. One of my favorite, favorite, favorite things to preach about is Jesus turning water into wine, because there's mm. nothing more alchemical and magic and there's magic throughout the Bible, mm-hmm. but, but it's his mom standing behind him going, come on, buddy, show him what you're made of. Like, give yeah. it a go. Let's see what happens. And so it's Mary, the mother Mary, standing behind him saying, come on. And that's what mm-hmm. I love about um, this book so much. And and this is, um, you, it, it's about these women's stories being critical to the thread of the Bible and the, mm-hmm. the, the life, the lifeblood of this work. And one of the things you you say, and this is towards the very end, um, you say you're talking about the woman of Revelation 12. Mm. And you say the woman of Revelation 12 calls us to trust that her God sees, understands, and even provides for us in ways that don't make sense and are no less powerful and true for that seeming lack of logic. And you actually say, I love the possibility of this and struggle with this. And I'm wondering if you would be willing to just, just really briefly talk about, I don't know if you can briefly talk about it, but in your world, the idea that God sees, understands and provides for us in ways that don't make sense and how that can be empowering and give us back our power instead of disempowering because of the way white supremacy and patriarchy have stolen that from us yeah you know white supremacy patriarchy colonialism capitalism all all of those combined continue to preach this message whether we think about it through a religious or theological lens or not that if i am if i do and be a certain way, then the result will be happiness, success, um, wealth, maybe beauty, love, like it's all going to work out. Like it's this big myth that if I only try hard enough or am good enough or follow the rules or whatever, buy the thing, whatever it is, that it's all going to be okay right? Like that, that's what we believe somehow, I think culturally. And so we purchase whatever we think is going to make our lives better. We stay in relationships that often are not on our best behalf because we believe that if we persevere, if we, you know, stick it out long enough that eventually it's going to be okay. Um, We delay or procrastinate or don't vote because we assume that eventually it's all going to work out. We, right? Like this is the, this is the world that we're in. And all of this is patriarchy and capitalism and white supremacy. It's all, all those things in a great big tangle. Okay. When I think about a God that cares for us distinctly in ways that don't make sense, necessarily that that might mean that everything doesn't work out 
<laughs> that might mean that I find myself needing to end a marriage, leave a job, um, accept my body for what it is instead of constantly trying to change it into something else that I allow, like, let's go back to the story of the Canaanite woman that I, that I live with the ache of a daughter that is not whole, yeah. like that. I survive that, that I stay in it. And that there's a God who comes alongside, who sees that, who says, uh-huh, I know, I understand, I'm with you. Uh -huh. And what we think and what we've been taught is that God is going to wave some magic wand and everything's all going to be fine. Uh -huh. And I just think that's been a misnomer, a mistake that we've made from the get-go, which I don't think is in the text. No. I think that's what, I think the text says, if it were God speaking, uh, I'm not here to make everything perfect. Like, no, like this is a messy story you're in the middle of. And frankly, more of the stories are confusing than they are clear. Good so luck and I love you. Yeah, let's just do this together, right? Like, mm -hmm. let's just hang out and walk through this because this is what it is. Instead of this constant demand or belief or expectation that things should be different. And right, like to mm -hmm. me, I mean, I often have thought like if we were to really pay attention to what's in the Bible, if we were to really look at the themes in there, what we would see is that this is a God who consistently shows up in upside down and backwards ways. Yeah. But what do we do over time, theologically, doctrinally, we write the course we yeah. turn it around the other way. We try to make sense of it. We tie a bow on it. We make it all pretty. And then when our lives aren't pretty, when, when we don't feel God's presence or care or kindness or generosity, we assume it's us, Yeah, which is just so formulaic. Mm -hmm. And I think there's nothing in that text that's formulaic. It's all yep. just a big jumble of mess. <laughs> um, which you mean it's, it's is, about human? Oh, oh my gosh. What are the chances? Mm -hmm. um, so I think for me, when I think about stories to go back to where we very first started, you know, I think if we don't look closely at these stories that we've been told, the way that they've been told, we can't possibly start to understand why we believe the things that we do, why we keep thinking that everything should be get better, why we keep trying so hard to be better. And again, I have nothing against self-improvement and growth and all of those kinds of things, but toward what end? Yeah. So if I, if I could look, if I can name those stories and the ways in which those have influenced me because of how they've been told, then if I retell them, I might actually begin to understand my own story a different way. Yeah. Oh, I could make a different choice that will feel very dissonant to the people in my world, but that doesn't mean it's wrong. Yeah. It's messy. I can make a different, right. I can make a different choice. And I have more than the 10 stories I've told here. I've got a whole bunch of examples of people who have made dissonant choices and have lived to tell the story. If we choose to tell the story that oh, way. Oh, I love that. I love that so much. Thank you so much for writing this book. Oh, thank, thank you so you. much for being on my podcast. I'm really excited. Of course. Uh, where can people find your book? 
Well, they can find it wherever books are sold. The other day I found it on the Walmart website of all places, but, um, you know, of course, Amazon, bookshop.org, Barnes and Noble, and at my website as well, ronadietrich.com. And we'll put your website in the show notes. And also, uh, where's the best place people can follow you in this journey of rewriting? Mm, well, I'm writing every week on Substack, which I'm loving. Uh, so I'm there, my name, just Rana Dietrich on Substack and then Facebook and Instagram. Great. Thank you so much for being with me today. I'm so grateful mm, for you. Thank you, Melissa. I appreciate it. Take care. Thank you. If you would like a weekly dose of love in your inbox, head on over to my website at www.doxermelissabird.com and sign up for my weekly newsletter where you will receive a weekly love note in your inbox just from me to you.